This is the Morning Sports Desk for Wednesday, December 13th. Corey, we got some high school sports-related things that we need to get to today. We got a lot of stuff for a Wednesday, so let's just kind of bang through a few things quick here. Uh, So the Minnesota Vikings announced that Nick Mullins is going to be their starting quarterback. The Pastronaut has officially been grounded to the bench. Yep. Uh, any kind of quick reaction, any any thoughts you need to put in on there? I think it's kind of shuffling deck chairs. If you're expecting a big turnaround, probably going to be disappointed, but also you kind of had to roll with Mullins after how bad Dobbs was on Sunday. Nope, I got nothing to add. That's exactly right. There, It wasn't um, – whatever magic he had does not seem like it was sustainable. The Vikings are having to choose between a backup or a backup or a backup. By the way, Nick Mullins, uh, QB1. There's a reports that Jaron Hall could be QB2 in this situation, so Dobbs could be that third quarterback all the way on the roster. Sure. Uh, anyway, uh, so some other things that we need to talk about here quickly as well. Uh, Shohei Otani got paid over the weekend, and we just have finally now had a chance to discuss it. So it's a 10-year, $700 million contract. Yeah. 10 years. 700 million. Yeah. Biggest contract in sports history. Uh, it's also, uh, if you take Mike Trout's contract of like 400 some million, if you take Garrett Cole's contract of 300 some million, you put them together and Shohei Otani, one of the best pitchers and hitters in the game, getting paid like the best pitcher and hitter in the game combined. I uh, think I saw a tweet that said Shohei Otani's record contract breaks Mike Trout's record contract by Alex Rodriguez's record-breaking contract. <laughs> Isn't it fun when the numbers work out like that? He's um he's incredible. We talk about Shohei uh, probably once a month during the baseball season. Um, it's not hyperbole to say he's the greatest baseball player of all time. Uh, we certainly have never seen anybody like him. It's been 100 years since Babe Ruth, the universally uh, previously known as the greatest baseball player of all time, It's which means it's going to be another 100 years before we see another Pretty the much. greatest baseball player of all time. Um, it may seem silly. It, those may seem like ridiculous numbers. He's He is a top three pitcher in the game, and he is a top three hitter in the game, and those lists are subjective. So he could very easily be the best of both. Um, good for him, man. By the way, his contract is structured so weird. He's getting paid $2 million a year for the next 10 years, and then uh, he gets deferred payments. So like deferred payments aren't anything new. Remember Bobby Bonilla Day, which is still going on? Yep. Bobby Bonilla Day is going to end in about 10 years, and in 10 years, we have Shohei Otani Day, where he gets paid $68 million a year for the next 10 years after. Yep. So in, what, 2043, the Dodgers are going to be paying Shohei Otani $68 million. It's just insane how this contract works. Bobby Bonilla Day goes on steroids uh, for this contract. Uh, it's so, so there's a couple reasons. One, the Dodgers still get some of that money is held against them in the competitive balance tax, which is the luxury tax in baseball. So it's not that the Dodgers are only writing off $2 million for a year for Shohei. Right. They're going to have to pay in that a little bit. But it still does give them greater financial flexibility to go out and continue to add and win, which I know people get mad when they say, you know, this is good for baseball. And be like, this is not good for baseball. We talk all the time, get Shohei Otani in the playoffs. Shohei Otani's going to be in the playoffs now. 
Like, yeah, it's super cool. And then, you know, there's some incentives for him to do it this way also. Uh, one is an opportunity to win. Um, right. When he's coming from an organization that had no interest in winning. Mm-hmm. Um, he is the most famous person in Japan. Right. And all of his endorsement dollars are insane. He is, this is not like. Also, like $2 million isn't that bad. Also, like $2 million is a tough salary he, to live on. He's not being, he's not being generous by this. You know, right. well, he's still, he's still going to be just fine. Also, there are some. Uh, tax incentives probably for him to do it this way you can skip the california tax when you get paid for two million dollars a year the california tax will will tax you on that two million but in 10 years he's probably going to retire and and he can go to he'll move back to japan he'll move back to japan and the tax uh uh, impla uh implication is going to just be different for him on that on that 68 million dollars exactly this this contract is something Shohei Otani's agent has been cooking up for a long time they didn't just sit down a month ago go all right how are we going to talk contract they've been planning this out for years it's really great for both sides yeah for the player and for the team well yeah and it also you know people like well in 2040 whatever the Dodgers are going to be paying him 68 million the guy who's running the Dodgers is not going to be around in 2040 and also that's somebody else's problem who cares we we've talked about this a lot off the year um people talk about windows in sports all Mm -hmm. the time and um they talk about it like it's some sort of fixed structure and that's not it's a it's a it's a fluid thing right so um you like the vikings had a window this year Uh uh-huh and then they lost to tampa week one and you're like oh boy this is gonna be right like the window that was there almost it didn't completely close but it closed a significant portion yeah. When you have Shoei on your team, your window remains just at least available to you. No one's going to lock it, lock right. that window. And for the amount of money they only have to pay him during this 10-year stretch, that means in five years, the next great young player is going to gonna be of it. Like Juan Soto in five years is finally going to be 25. Mm-hmm. And like maybe that's a guy. You bring over to help your team. Whatever. There, there's lots of opportunities for for both the, the Shohei and the Dodgers to run with this. And if you're somebody who says, "Well, great, the Dodgers have Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, Shohei Otani, Clayton Kershaw's still sticking around. They got some pitchers that can do some stuff. How is anybody supposed to win the World Series with them stacking the team?" It's the fun part about baseball. The Dodgers have been the perennial best team in baseball for the last 10 years, it feels like, and they've had some of the most embarrassing playoff defeats because baseball playoffs are the hardest to win if you're the best team. It's not football or basketball where typically the top couple seeds are in it at the very end. Baseball playoffs are so fluky, such a small sample size. Things get weird really quick. Uh, So this doesn't guarantee them a World Series or anything, but it does guarantee them that they are going to get in the dance every single year it buys them it gets them the reservation right that's what it and and all you can do is is hope to get there baseball and hockey seem to be the most random it's who caught fire at the exact right time and you know it's why like an 86 win st louis team can win the win the world series you know 15 years ago whenever that was or yeah at you know was atlanta the best team in baseball when they won it a few years ago or did they just get hot no, at the right time atlanta was they had 84 wins they right. just snuck in and they won the world series and then they were like 100 plus win teams the next two years and they got embarrassing playoff defeats in the first round so uh but we've learned that i mean it looks embarrassing on the surface but the point is you got to get there right you can't have an embarrassing loss if you're not there and i'd rather get there right 
So anyway, uh, moving over to the Twins for baseball news. Joe Maurer has been getting some Hall of Fame votes. He's yep. on the ballot for the first time this year. Him and Tori Hunter have their names like right next to each other, which just for my sure. childhood nostalgia purposes is kind of cool. Uh, remember when Michael Kadire was on the ballot like two years ago? They're all good on the ballot. <laughs> he didn't make the cut. No, he didn't. Uh, uh, anyway, love you, Cuddy, but no. Uh, so uh, so yeah, Joe Maurer is getting some Hall of Fame votes, and surprisingly, he's getting a lot more in this early stage. So you can make writers vote on the Hall of Fame yep. and the Baseball Writers Association of America. They do their votes. They are voting. It's still very early. Like we are like in terms of like if you're using this as like an election for reference, like 10% of precincts are reporting. We still have a long way to go. But Joe Maurer has been getting a lot of love. And if we stopped the count right now, Joe Maurer is a Hall of Famer. First ballot. I have a. I have no. I. I mean, you're not going to find any disagreement from me on this, right? He's uh, awesome. The one quick question I'll have for you, Corey, is there a difference for you in first ballot Hall of Famer versus uh, just a guy who get in got in maybe on the third time? I have always believed with all of my heart that if you're a Hall of Famer, you're a Hall of Famer. So I, what I there is no difference from my perspective of we can use Burb Blylevin as the example. That dude was always a Hall of Famer to me. Mm-hmm. Um, just from every, I obviously never got to watch him play, but um, from everything I ever heard about uh, what Blylevin brought to the, the dude was a Hall of Famer, and he just was never rewarded with such a title. So, no, it doesn't matter first ballot, second ballot. What what matters is that you're in. What I don't like is the politics around the. Well, we can't vote this guy. Well, in the first time because we didn't even vote that guy in the first time and that guy's an objectively better player but they didn't vote that guy in the first time either because right. he wasn't as good as a guy the year before just vote people in i don't i, I don't like the game they're good enough to make the hall of fame in. yeah there's no the joe mauer if he makes it on the first ballot or the third ballot it, it's not written in that way as a first ballot or a third right. ballot you're just a hall of famer uh yeah i think joe mauer should be a hall of famer i thought it would take him a few years and it still might maybe the voting on the private ballots aren't going to show it that way not all, not every ballot is public we're only basing this off of the public ballots that have been released so far um but joe mauer's a hall of famer whether it's this year or in five years but based on so far the swell that he's gotten early i think if he doesn't get in this year i think he probably gets in as early as next year i think the I don't know if this is true. I'm I'm making this part up. But what I hope is the case is, I don't know if you thought he was a first ballot guy. I'm not sure I thought he was a first ballot guy. Seems like a Hall of Famer to me. Right. But um, what I'm hoping is that some of this public stuff that's out right now, and maybe people are waiting to make their vote because there's a decision to be made, that there's enough people who have voted for Maurer to be in that that's enough to persuade somebody to be like, you know, I was going to wait because it just didn't. But if if some this if everyone else is doing it, why can't I? Right. If everybody else is jumping in the pool, I'm not scared to jump in either. Let's go right. for it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, so there's a few high school notes that we need to get to. So let's uh, kind of hit through them. Uh, first off is, uh, Corey, there's a couple uh, Verndale girls who have some accolades that you want to share with us. Uh, yeah, I just saw it was announced um uh, what day is it? Wednesday? Today this, is Wednesday, uh, yes. This week, uh, Reagan Ludovici has got her 1,000th career point for the uh, Verndale Pirates girls basketball team. Awesome. Uh, that was announced. Also announced this week, uh, state champion wrestler Abby Irvesty 
has signed to wrestle at the next level, Division II, the University of Sioux Falls. I didn't even know they had girls wrestling. So I want to congratulate Abby uh, on, on that accomplishment. Anytime you get to do anything at the next level, it's a, uh, as uh, Dan would say, it's a, a big ding-dang deal. It's a big <laughs> ding-dang deal, yeah. Speaking of big ding-dang deals, uh, over in Purim, uh, according to their Twitter page, they have a congratulatory post to Willow Teal. She breaks Katrina Meckendeck, or Nordic, as uh, girls' basketball scoring record. So Willow Teal, the highest-scoring girls' basketball player in Purim Yellow Jacket history. Right, and, and we announced last week, I think it was, that she's going to play basketball at Crookston. Yep. Um, she's awesome. If you haven't had a chance to, if, if you're a basketball fan and uh, like to watch the best players in the area, put her on the list if you haven't already. All right. So there's a couple minutes here, not as much time maybe as we need for this discussion, but I think we should have it anyways. So yesterday, Corey, I was uh, up in Monaga. I was just watching my brother's basketball game, Monaga and Bertha Hewitt uh, uh, in boys basketball. And they, so Bertha got up early and it kind of was back and forth. They'd get like Bertha had a lead maybe of like five points and it go to 15 and kind of fluctuate at halftime is maybe like a 15 point lead. And then in the second half, they kind of went on a little run right away. It was close to like a 20 point lead uh, with maybe like 16, 15 minutes to go in the half, in the second half. And Bertha early in the shot clock took a couple early shots. Let's put it that way. And they call a timeout to be like, Hey, we have a shot clock. We have this. Like, we don't need to be. We're up by 20. Let's not have quick offensive possessions. Let's milk a little clock. But because of the shot clock, you can't run four out motion and just run out the clock. And this, this is the first case I've seen in real time of the shot clock making a game more competitive. Because of that, and because the shot clock forced both teams to have to run a quick offense, it allowed Monaga to get back in the game. It was like a, they whittled it down to about a six-point deficit at one point. Berth Hewitt hung on to win, but it made the game much more competitive and a better game for everybody involved. And so my case is, Corey, you know, this is going to be the interesting thing to watch with teams this year is how do they handle the shot clock when you have a lead because you can't just run away and hide with the ball anymore. You have to put it up or give it to the other team. It's it's there's going to be some shot clock fundamentals that will be learned. It's been around like you mentioned now for a couple of years, but now officially universally, uh, it is the case. And yeah, in postseason and all yep, that. Yep, there's going to be some some uh, a learning curve for teams and coaches on on how to handle it. Now, 35 seconds is a long time. Most teams are able to get shots up in less than 35 seconds anyway, which in in a lot of instances made the shot clock switch irrelevant. But in those instances where it, it was the case, now you have to just you got to fire up a twenty five footer if you right. have to. Uh, um, uh, so there's some, but yeah, there's some weird things. How do you handle those late game situations? Um, I haven't had to see it yet, but you know, are we are we going to get two for ones where there's forty eight seconds left in the clock? By all accounts, you should try to score immediately. So that way you can get the ball back and run out the clock over those last 35. Like, it should be right. breakneck with about 90 seconds left in the half in the game because teams are trying to score to 
get the ball back for that last possession. Yeah, there's going there's going to be a, a little bit of a learning curve here for teams and coaches. Yeah, and it makes the game more exciting like you talked about with a couple of those things in the late game situations just being able to do that and being able to uh, kind of force teams to play offense and force teams to score. It means more kids get the opportunity to score. It means more kids get the opportunity on defense to make a steal, make a block shot, get a rebound, do all of this stuff, and just forces more things within the game to happen, more than kids just sitting around, standing around, I should say, uh, kind of moving the ball around with no real plan to score and just kind of to kill the clock and whittle it down. And it's almost like football, like it's ball possession. But this is the thing of why the shot clock was such an important thing to add for the high school league. And I'm so glad that they have it right now and it's in place. And it's like Corey talked about. Most schools have a plan to get a shot up within 35 seconds. I think everybody can do that. I think almost any team in the state can do that. But the issue is the game within a game of the shot clock. Like Corey talked about trying to get a two for one at the end of the half, trying to score quickly with 45 seconds force the other team to have they can't hold on to it till halftime which means you can hold on to the shot on, uh, at half and try and get your buzzer beater and go into the half and steal an extra score and there's also the thing of like in Monaga last night the Braves because of the shot clock were able to come back in the game because Bertha Hewitt again every team has to figure this out playing with the shot clock, needed to figure out how do we do this? Do we wait till five seconds and huck up a bad shot? Do we start it at 15 seconds to get a good shot? Do we do whatever? Teams need to do it, fail, learn, whatever. And I'm not saying Bertha failed at it last night, Bertha Hewitt failed at it last night or anything, but what I'm trying to say is like teams have to just try and figure out how to play it, and the only way you can play it is by actually playing the games. And whether you succeed or fail, you learn from that and you kind of keep building on that experience. So one of my things over the course of the season, I'm going to be really looking forward to talking with boys and girls basketball coaches is their view on situational things with the shot clock. When you're up by 20 in the second half, how are you handling that? When you're down by 10, you know, how do you handle the shot clock? How do you use that to your advantage when you're down by two scores and there's two minutes to go in the old days, you might have to start fouling already because a team is just going to hold on to the ball and motion it. Now instead, you can just play straight-up defense because you know you're going to get a couple more possessions. It's fascinating, and it's going to be really fun to watch. This has been the Morning Sports Desk for Wednesday, December 13th.